the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our final hour of the week, March 12th, Friday. I wanted to talk to one of my favorite people and uh, one of the nation's great and important uh, public intellectuals, Pete Peterson. He is the uh, dean and uh, Brown Family Dean's Chair at uh, Pepperdine School of Public Policy, where they're doing great work, uh, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is their website, and there's a lot I want to do, um, and I just thought Pete was the perfect piece, person to do it with. Pete, happy Friday. How are you, sir? And to you, Seth. Always great to, to end the week with you. Thank you. We should end more weeks together, I yes, think. Yes, agreed. If you have the time, I have the beer, or the show. <laughs> is that the old Miller commercial? If you have the yes, time, we have was. the beer, something like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Pete, um, first off, I've got so much I want to do. Let, 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 let's let's start small and go big. I was I was remarking a lot of this is in the context of um, the one year anniversary of COVID being uh, identified as as a, as a world uh, pandemic, and really about this time a year ago is when schools and everything else started shutting down. And I was I was just remembering with the audience, you know, the real heroes in the media at that time were three people, um, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, and Anthony Fauci. Mm-hmm. One is uh, under federal investigation, not to mention criminal investigation uh, by the local Albany police for sexual harassment, right. hanging on to his job by a, by, a, by, a, by, by a string. The other is facing, in your state of California, a recall. We can talk about yep. Fauci later, but let's talk about that second one. Let's talk about Gavin Newsom. He gave a uh, State of the State address this week that I have to tell you, I don't know what you saw, but I saw uh, out-of-touch paternalism where he was talking about a few naysayers, bait, working off outdated prejudices when it comes to opening the state – it's not a few naysayers who are trying to recall him, it doesn't seem to me. Talk to me about the state of California and the state of Gavin Newsom. Yeah, well, it was – I'll never forget, as I, I have a couple of these uh, journalists in my Twitter feed, uh, the phrase President Cuomo and President Newsom were bandied about. Yeah, 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 in, yeah, yeah. You remember that yeah, back yeah. in March and yeah. April and May? And yeah. Sim and the media lost for that uh, that reality, which never came about. But you're right about how much has changed since here in California. Uh, we have just hit 2 million signatures, mm-hmm. uh, of which we need 1.5 million to be verified to move forward with a recall vote uh, this fall. And it is going to happen. So that cushion that- is big enough, evidently. Yeah, what they've been looking at is around in the signatures they have submitted, 
uh, around uh, 75 to low 80 percent validity, which is very high. Yeah, 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 um, sure. So there's a reality here that there's a there's a groundswell, and you know not all of those two million signatures are Republicans. <laughs> I saw someone Uh, uh, on TV earlier today who's involved in the effort saying he thinks maybe even 40 percent might not be or more than. Well, if you just extrapolate it even from our party registration, that that is certainly possible. I do know anecdotally many Democrats who are just exasperated at the lack of leadership coming from the governor. And it's really along two lines, both connected to the handling of the pandemic. One has been the continued closing of the public schools. And even though the governor said several times that he is intending to open the schools, it it just shows the fact that uh, he is not in control of that issue, the public sector uh, teachers' unions are. And then in the other, the broader closure and what it's meant for businesses, the rather random handling of of policies that have gone forth from the governor's office have caused a lot of business owners and many of them here in California uh, to get behind both financially and just directly with their signature uh, this recall effort. Um, The schools and the public sector teachers unions, turns out they're a lot more powerful than even science, uh, whether we're talking (laughs) California. Really, though, right? Uh, We've been told, follow the science, follow the science. They're so strong, they can even overrule the director of the CDC, Rachel Walensky, Rochelle Walensky, right, who said it's time to open the schools and then three days later was put in her box, wasn't she? That's right. I mean, it's not follow the science here. It's it follow the teachers' unions. It's, it's mean, follow that, the right that, political science, isn't it? That really – yeah, very good. Uh, that is the case. And again, what's been remarkable about the governor's approach to this is he has been out on the hustings making the argument that we need to be opening the schools, by the way, as his children go to private schools. Is that a fact? Do they? As a note. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Um, so while that is happening – He's making the arguments as to why the schools should be open. Uh, they remain closed. And so it shows a certain degree of, of weakness. And again, who really is controlling the issue? And it's not the governor. And his words are continuing to ring hollow as he continues to call for schools to be open. And here we are. Uh, they continue to remain closed throughout the state. And I got to tell you, Pete, I think, you know, this notion of who's politicizing the virus and who isn't, I, 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 I will debate anyone that it wasn't our side or at least my side that politicized this. So when he says something like he did this week, which is, if I may, if I may quote to you, we won't change course just because a few naysayers and doomsayers tell us to, to the California critics who are promoting power, partisan power grabs and outdated prejudices and rejecting everything that makes California great. We say this, we will not be distracted from getting shots in arms and our economy booming again. Well, who on the wide, wide world of sports is trying to disrupt getting shots in arms? I, I, yeah. th- that's just a total answering a question that hasn't been asked, uh, a total straw man, I think. And economy <laughs> booming, who shut it down? Not you. Yeah. Right. Well, there's, there's hardly a straw man that's, that's left standing within 20 miles of any Gavin Newsom speech. Okay. That is, that is for sure. Okay. Um, but that, the particular comments that you raised, particularly around this 
you know, naysayer uh, reference to many Californians that have suffered greatly. Uh, and it's worth saying, and we've talked about this so many times, Seth, on your show, that in many of these policy decisions, it's those at the lower end of the income spectrum uh, that are suffering most, whether it's the parents who have to work and are trying to work, but they can't send their kids to school, uh, or those that, again, you know, as a, the small businesses themselves, the small business owners who may be actually middle income, uh, have had to close their businesses due to the broader policy. So these aren't naysayers. Uh, these are people who have suffered at the hands of, of bad policymaking. You know, one thing I learned, I didn't learn a ton. Well, that's that's unfair. I, I won't make a statement like that. But one of the things I did learn throughout this past year, Pete, I didn't know this. You probably did, having been in education so much longer and directly than I have. One of the things I didn't know was that schools in, if not many or all states, a lot of states, schools are the number one vector for reporting child abuse. Mm. Uh, right. I did not know that. Yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't either. So yeah. so Department of Children's Services here and in other states are reporting tens of thousands, tens of thousands less reporting this year or over the past year than the year before which makes them exceedingly nervous because the teachers or people at schools and administrators will often be the first report to, a, to, to, to intervene in noticing a child is being abused. Yeah. This lack of uh, reporting is what makes the social work efforts and safety of our children. It's something that not enough people are talking about. But it, it's it's one of these ancillary social destructive fallouts from the shutdown of schools. We can talk about nourishment. We can talk about education. We can talk about disrupted social life. I don't think anyone's talking about children, ch children being abused. You know, there were just one or two of those stories I remember in the very beginning. But as soon as anyone said, you know, is the cure going to be worse right. than the disease, everybody got shouted down. Yep. And it was all about the pandemic. And here we are. Uh, just beginning to really assess those costs. We've talked on this show many times about the increases in suicide rates yep. and calls to yeah. hotlines, and this is all part and parcel of many of those same issues. And again, anecdotally, I'm sure many of your listeners can drive through neighborhoods. I just had one of our, our staff here mention that in the neighborhood that she lives in and um, just over the hill here from Malibu in the in valley that she drives, comes into work from the neighborhood and she knows that parents are leaving kids who are five, six, yeah. seven years old yeah. uh, to kind of fend for them yeah. themselves in online school because they have to go to work. I mean, let me, let me take this hard break, Pete, and come back yeah. and talk to you about other lessons you have gleaned over the past year, if I can. We'll be right back with more from Pete Peterson of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, um, a br brilliant academic and uh, collector of uh, great teachers over at Pepperdine. Um, also a, a ska musician in his salad days. And Pete, we were having a uh, discussion amongst the audience here. Some crazy person suggested to me that Bob Dylan's song, Forever Young, you probably know the other versions of it. 
versions that you understand the lyrics to, but Bob Dylan did write it. Uh, you probably know the Rod Stewart version, but um, uh, said he, he he suggested it might have been the most conservative song in rock and roll. Someone else said "Coming to America." If you break down the lyrics from Neil Diamond, I got "Twisted Sister." We're not going to take it. Uh, yeah. I got an Elvis nomination from a Mac Davis uh, piece uh, called "Clean Up Your Own Backyard." A little abstruse. Yeah. Uh, what am I missing? Almost anything by Rush. Uh, and that was going to be where I was going to go. You were going to go to Rush. Metallica had something my producer nominated, Don't Tread on Me. And then someone said The Tax Man by The Beatles. I hate to go to abroad to get an American conservative rock song. But uh, <laughs> if you have, as a ska expert or uh, a music uh, aficionado, any nominations, uh, we'll take them. You were going to nominate... Anything from Rush? I was going to go. I was going to go. Red Barchetta. Red uh, Barchetta. Well, my producer is loving you. He's loving you yeah, for that. Uh, this is a this is a shout out to my my brother who's who's listening online and he's a big big Rush fan. And uh, but yeah, Red Barchetta. I would is is a song about the the government squelching the use of a gas powered fueled car. Fantastic. And, uh, future where that was going to be impossible if not illegal to do (laughs) speaking of just a funny anecdote Uh, to me it's funny it's you know it's that line from sir thomas more in uh in uh, a man for all seasons i show you the times um two friends of mine went to a rush concert here in phoenix a few years back and uh they had upfront seating and one of them came back and told me, you know, there was so much pot. I went to one of the security guards and said, can you do yeah. anything about all the all the smoke? And he goes, yeah. all the pot smoking. And the security guard said to her, no, but if you light a cigarette, we can come in. <laughs> I show you the times. I show you the times. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, before we do a little more COVID, uh, many in the audience are curious about the California recall how it yeah. works. Okay, so you have the signatures, most likely it looks like, within a, about an 80% confidence level at this point. So there will be a right. recall election. Then what? What does that election look like? What happens? So the next step is going to be the formal um, validation of the signatures by our Secretary of State's office. Um, it, it might strike some as being pretty ironic that the Democrats combing over every single signature with a magnifying glass to make sure it's valid. But here we are. Uh, Once they hit the requisite one with setting a a date for the actual election that is to be held no longer than six months from the announcement. So this is going to put us probably somewhere in the October, November timeframe. There is not another statewide election scheduled for this year. So this would be the only issue on the ballot. Uh And so when it goes to ballot, there are only going to be two questions. Question number one, do you vote to recall the sitting governor? Yes or no. And question number two is if it's percent plus one, if it if number if question number one passes, who do you select to be the replacement? Now, Back in 2003, last go-round here at this, um, in which I'm sure your listeners know the the governor, as we've come to know him, Governor Schwarzenegger, 
these, this method, um, there were 135 names on that ballot. Is that right? Press. 135. And as, an, as a demonstration of the governor's, the eventual governor's incredible name recognition, he still managed to pull around 49% of the vote. Even and were there other prominent Republicans? I remember at one point someone like Daryl Issa, maybe even Ariana Huffington were looking at this. I don't know if they ever... That's right. And Tom McClintock is... Oh, yeah, know, Tom. Tom. did conservative. Right. Uh, now, Congressman yeah. um, was on that ballot. Man, he's great, by the way. He would have been a better choice, I think. Yeah, yeah. So we learned. But to say, um, that that's what happened. Yeah. And so... There doesn't appear to be a massive name like a Schwarzenegger. It's entirely possible that if question number one goes to 50% plus one, that the candidate who becomes the governor could end up 22, 23, 24% of the vote. I mean, that 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 is the way the system— And it could be Gavin Newsom, right? No, so the— so the if there's a recall, dictate. he, by definition, is not an option for question two. That's correct. The I only see. Way that he, I see. He's out. He survives the actual. I gotcha. I gotcha. One so the Democrats out. have to field someone in that case. Well, and this is where the real palace intrigues kick in, right? Yeah. Because all the Democrats in California, including all the statewide office holders, have been fairly uh, well banded together all in support of the governor uh-huh. of course happened also back in 2003 yeah with gray until, davis right yeah, yeah that's yeah. right with gray davis until it became evident that the recall had a good chance of passing yeah kind of like but watching democrats to, not defending cuomo anymore in new york kind of that's right yeah and so in yeah. that case the lieutenant governor peeled off and said that he was going to run and then it all came apart so I have a wish list of two potential Republicans to run uh, in California. I, I've told you before, I think I, – I don't know if you're thinking about it, but I think you'd be great and we'd do everything we could uh, for you to do it. If you had the taste for it, it would be fabulous, Pete. You've got the look. You've got the name. You've got the smarts. You've got the brain and, and you've got the right ideology. And then the other name I've seen thrown around a little bit is Rick Grinnell. Yeah. Well, I've also got the view. You forgot you forgot about that. I know, but you know, Sacramento can look nice from time to time. <laughs> hey, I love what I do, and I am not. Uh, I am not throwing my hat in. Suffice it to say, and- Reagan fixed as governor a lot of the university mess in California from Sacramento, as I recall, Pete. So interesting you say that. I was actually just looking at an old Reagan speech about the the situation across. Those the- are great speeches. His governor oh, speeches. That- I got to take a break. Can you stick around a little bit? Yeah. Let's yep. do more on that. Let's do Reagan the gov- as governor and, and universities, your run for governor, uh, which we're starting here in Phoenix, outside money and all that. And uh, I do have COVID questions. I want to do a broader look at a year into COVID with you. We'll be right back with Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, not just from, the dean. And their website is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. You know, one of the interesting things Pete's been about for some years now is uh, senses of community, restoring senses of community and communitarian impulses. It may be one of the great, greatest social losses over the past year uh, due not to COVID, but to the responses to COVID, the mediation efforts on COVID. I want to talk to Pete about how we reclaim that 
And maybe we reclaim it by pointing out how much was lost by its loss. You know, sometimes loss is a great teacher. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have with us uh, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at uh, the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And uh, we're visiting on a few different issues, uh, California and then the nation, maybe the world too a little bit. Uh, Pete, uh, did we uh, exhaust what we needed to on the recall or was there more info you wanted to share with us on how that works? And no, other than to that? say the uh, field is still to be determined yeah. for that second question. What, okay. we, what we definitely know now is, is going to go forward to the ballot in the fall. Uh, the other, what uh, Secretary Rumsfeld would call the known unknowns, yeah. are does it does it pass? The first question is he recalled, and then second, who comes in next? Now I have to fully disclose we do have uh, the former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Falconer, serving as a visiting professor with us. I like him. I've seen him on TV. Here. I like him a lot, uh, and I've gotten to know him. He's been yeah. great with our students already yeah. this year. Certainly. Someone that, while I'm not really in a position to endorse, yeah. has has actually run for office and won Good. prior to running for governor, which Good. is not something that's been the tradition of Republican gubernatorial candidates here in the last couple of decades. Is there still a North-South California thing that kind of follows a left-right, or has that been obliterated by the takeover of the left and the collapse of the Republican Party in California? Yeah, in many ways, it is an East-West state politically, okay. Okay. not a North-South. So, so far, the, farm versus farming versus uh, or agriculture, I should say, I guess, versus ocean or something? That's right. Right. So the, what they call the Central Valley, uh-huh. which is uh-huh. the eastern part of the state, still tends to be quite act in most statewide elections if you're running a decent gubernatorial or statewide campaign of the 58 counties republicans will tend to win over 30 of them um but again they don't win they don't win the ones where most people are living and uh that's that's how we are where we are where we're at what was it prop 16 the race affirmative action yeah okay so that wins hugely in 2020 it's the untold conservative victory american victory is a better way to put it of the last of last year's elections this for listeners that don't know this was a proposition put before california voters that have just in shorthand would have restored racial preferences just leave it at that for now unless pete you feel you need to fix nope. that. Um, and it was defeated hugely. And it was outspent hugely. Is that any kind of into, in, indicator of a possible conservatism that's coming back or common sense that's coming back? Or was that an outlier? You know, Seth, you and I have spoken a couple of times about if there is the Republican Party, I think it's going to have to be uh, focused on a more uh, blue-collar set of around economic development, education reform. And in that, I believe there's a pretty interesting opportunity to appeal to more uh, ethnic and racially diverse voters mm-hmm. uh, who increasingly make up our state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a pitch can be that uh, 
as as the great President Reagan once said, you know, he didn't leave the Democratic Party. It left him. And yeah. I think yeah. on an array of issues that uh, people care about that have been revealed by the pandemic, you know, we've talked about the economic issues as well as the education issues, um, an alternative to the current Democratic uh, set of policy positions, um, there's, a, there's an opportunity there uh, to make that case. I think there's a huge opportunity, and uh, and and I don't know if you had a chance. To, I don't know if you know Glenn Harlan Reynolds. I don't know him. I read him, professor of law at the University of Tennessee, who has a column and an instapundit. His most recent column is kind of interesting. He points out a couple things. It may be forgotten, but in his lifetime, no Republican president got more of the minority vote than Donald Trump. Set that aside for a moment. He, he his his other point had to do with these cultural issues having to do with what with what the woke movement has has foisted upon us and he makes a really i think a really good point which is how do you think dr seuss would have done in a referendum and and the point is that he's making is probably 90 10 in favor yeah that 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 we are cowed a minority 3 to 4% of the population that gives a damn about this woke crud is cowing, you know, a large part of the population that if someone would be honest and direct about it, most Americans wouldn't buy into and go for it. Might we pick up on that on the other side of the break? Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Pete. We'll be right back with Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and just one of my favorite broad thinkers in America, one of my favorite public intellectuals. Pete, I, I didn't, as so many times in our conversations, don't know, didn't know I was going to go here with you. But if you don't mind, I'd love to. When we're talking, you you brought up, you know, some of the the, the cultural conservatism that that has appealed in the past. Reagan had it. Donald Trump had it. To uh, to to people you don't necessarily think is part and parcel of the Republican Party. Reagan Democrats was the term that was coined uh, out of out of uh, the voteries in Michigan back in 1980, and I think it's fair to say Donald Trump had some as well. California may have some, and maybe Proposition 16 was an indicator of that. And I was thinking about that in the context of this column today by Glenn Harlan Reynolds from the University of Tennessee. He points out that this woke Business, you know, whether we're talking about uh, critical race theory or whether we're talking about the silliness of, uh, you know, uh, Speedy Gonzalez and Pepe Le Pew or Mr. Potato Head, even Aunt Jemima. He writes, it's happening not because anybody voted for, it, but because a small and determined and vicious minority is bullying people to go along, relying on cowardice and groupthink to achieve ends that could never happen via majority vote. Let me give you one more quote from his column, and I'll let you uh, take off on it. He quotes Nicholas uh, Nassim Taleb, um, you know, the black swan author, but a book of his called Skin in the Game, saying that 3% to 4% is enough of an intransigent minority to change the direction of an entire society. That's pretty frightening if you don't have courage, I suppose. Yeah, you know, Seth, I've I've thought for some time the watchword for this year is courage. Good. Um and uh it's 
it reminds me this conversation. I, I often harken back. There was an incredible, incredibly comprehensive survey done um, by a UK-based firm called More in Common that was reported uh, back in 2018. American voters, along with a number of, of focus groups, to, to fill out the survey. And one of the remarkable things that came out of that pretty wide-ranging survey was uh, the number, one issue that found agreement across all ethnic uh, segments, all, all household income segments, almost all educational attainment segments, was uh, agreement with a quotation, uh, political correctness is a major problem in America. Okay, okay. Eighty percent of that total 8,000 group uh, agreed with that statement. Now, when they dug into the specific, what they would say, the crosstabs of that, uh, when you went into the ethnic minority groups, um, blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans in particular, they were all over 80% in agreeing with that statement. Um, and some of the quotations that come out of the focus groups, this was reported in the Atlantic by uh, Yasha Monk there back in, I guess it was late, late 2018, maybe October or November. But I won't forget that there were only two groups uh, that polled less than 50 were those who classified themselves politically as ultra-progressive, and the other, those who had uh, educational attainment, master's degree, or above. No kidding. Okay. So those were the only two. And again, across the different ethnic and racial groups, general agreement with that statement. Now, what that means to me, to your point, is that when you get 80% of Americans on anything— <laughs> You have, you have really touched on, touched on something. Yet here we are, with uh, with Dr. Seuss being canceled and uh, and other other issues uh, related. I scrolled through my Twitter feed today and I stumbled upon a friend of mine who is a former city council member in Bell, California, yeah. largely Hispanic, uh, and he himself is Hispanic a paragraph dissertation on why he loved Speedy Gonzalez as a kid. <laughs> and he just thinks it's ludicrous as a Hispanic that uh, these these attacks are being lobbied uh, in this way. So I agree. I don't think we're talking near uh, anything that would approach double digits as far as groups that are supporting or promoting these issues, but it, it will take courage to respond to it. Yeah, it will take courage. And I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, when Reagan talked about cultural issues, or for that matter, when Donald Trump did, they were mostly the Bush did a little bit, the George W. did a little bit when it came to the welfare stuff. But when Donald Trump was campaigning in 2016, the first time I really, really opened my eyes to him was when he said political correctness is one of our greatest problems. Yeah. And 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 I think when he combined that with telling an African-American audience, what the hell do you have to lose? We started to see the kind of courage that would go after the cultural conservatism that I'd like to think still beats in the breast of most Americans. 
Yeah, although it's changed, yeah. right? Yeah. It's the cultural conservatism is, is certainly the the pro-life movement remains uh, a bedrock of the conservative yep. movement more broadly, but the, the social issues, so to speak, have really changed yeah. to these mm. issues around free speech yep. and freedom of thought and, and not feeling like you have to walk on eggshells right. uh, whenever you're engaging in a conversation about politics, uh, race, or religion. It's true. And, you know, fine. If, 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 if the cultural conservative issues that resonate are issues that go to the heart of our constitutional freedom guarantees, fine. Let's have that fight. Let's take that to the American voters. Because I think they're getting sick and tired of it. And I think what this administration is showing and Democratic control of Washington is showing is the reality of what you and I and other conservatives were trying to say theoretically was the risk to social was the risk of socialism in America. Uh, you're, you're one of your great academic uh, uh, lights, Robert Nisbet, liked to point yeah. out that socialism was was really more political than economic, and we're now seeing it, aren't we? We are, and again, you know, you raised Taleb's name. He also wrote an important book uh, called Anti-Fragility. Yeah, and right, right. This is about uh, understanding and growing through conflict as opposed to avoiding mm-hmm. it. Yes, handling it in a civil way, mm-hmm. but but not standing for being shouted down in that are simply meant to avoid uh, conversations about, dare we say, inconvenient truth. Right, right, right. Well, Pete, boy, you gave me a lot to think about this weekend, as you always do, and it's great checking in with you and catching up with you. Let me wish you a happy weekend, a happy, healthy, and safe weekend, and a blessed and Sabbath on Sunday. You betcha, brother. All right. Perfect. Keep me in your thoughts. I'm running a 10K, and I'm not in great shape. Oh, will do. <laughs> All right. Do. We'll check in with you soon. God bless you, Pete Peterson. You too, Seth. Take care. Thank you, sir. I had a bunch of things I wanted to close with today, including a really interesting statement I discovered from William Buckley's in 1978. I'm going to leave it alone because I'm just – I'm encircelled by what I was quoting to Pete and what I um, talked about in my monologue in this column by Glenn Harlan Reynolds um, about woke tyrants. They ride high. They ride high – Even so, according to a poll, 62% of Americans self-censored their political expression. That is to say, only a tiny minority of consumers really care about what the woke care about. Mr. Potato Head, Aunt Jemima, Pepe Le Pew. Yet corporations, universities, and governments rush to placate that minuscule slice of the population – trashing large chunks of our culture in the process. It's happening not because anybody voted for it, but because a small and determined and vicious, important word, minority, is bullying people to go along, relying on cowardice and groupthink to achieve ends that could never happen via majority vote. How do you think Dr. Seuss would have done in a referendum? In his book, Skin in the Game, Nicholas Nassim Taleb writes about the surprising ability of small but intransigent minorities. 3% to 4% is enough to change the direction of entire societies where the most intolerant win 
and how an intolerant minority can, can destroy and control democracy. Do not let it happen. Notice what Professor Reynolds says is the first problem. Cowardice. What's the answer to cowardice? Courage. That's why Aristotle called it the first virtue. God bless you all. Thanks for tuning in this week and today. Until Monday, God bless you and class dismissed.